Um, it's with a tremendous amount of pleasure, nostalgia, that we want to introduce tonight's speaker to you, and I will then also introduce uh, the commentator and then get out of the way so they can start the program. Rashid Khalidi is now the Edward Said Professor of Arab Studies and Director of the Middle East Institute of Columbia University. He got his doctorate in philosophy at Oxford University in 1974, and for many years was a professor of history and Near Eastern languages and civilizations here at the University of Chicago, and a dear member of our community. He was also director of the Center for International Studies. His teaching and research encompassed the history of the modern Middle East, and in particular, the countries of the southern and eastern Mediterranean, with an emphasis on the emergence of national identity and the involvement of external powers in the region. He's particularly interested in the role of the press in the formation of new publics and new senses of community, in the place of education in the construction of identity, and in the ways narratives of self and other have interacted over the past two centuries in this conflicted region. Um, there will be copies of his book, new book, Resurrecting Empire, available for sale out in the hall for those of you who haven't gotten them, uh, courtesy of the Seminary Co-op Bookstore. And Rashid will also be signing books after his talk, I think situated at this little table right here in front of the stage as opposed to out in the hall. Um, Rashid's talk tonight will be moderated, commentated on a question by Alfredo Lanier. Alfredo Lanier is a member of the Chicago Tribune editorial board, responsible for many of the editorials on foreign policy. He has particular concentrations in Latin America and the Middle East. And as I kid him sometimes, occasionally you have to read other newspapers in order to get the news that his editorials are commenting on. But he really has done... Uh, <laughs> He really has done a great job um, on a wide range of issues in his position on the editorial board, and we're very pleased to welcome him to campus. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our dear friend, colleague, and much-missed distant neighbor, Rashid Khalidi. Thank you very, very much for what is turning out to be a warm Chicago welcome. <laughs> I was at the Cubs game this afternoon. You don't know how warm it is until you are sweating out there. Um, it's a great pleasure to be back at the University of Chicago, even as a visitor. Um, as, as many of you perhaps know, I'm here as part of a book tour uh, organized by Beacon Press, which is the publisher of my latest book, Resurrecting Empire. It is fitting that I should speak about this book here at the University of Chicago, since most of it was actually written here in Chicago. And it was in very large measure inspired by my interactions with my colleagues and my friends here uh, over the last few years. Um, some of you in this room, not just friends, but uh, also perhaps students, may have heard uh, talks or speeches or lectures uh, in which I first worked out some of the themes of this book. And what I want to do this, this steamy afternoon uh, is to begin by laying out the main themes of the book um, in summary form. I hope you'll buy it. I hope you read it. Um, and I, I, I think that, frankly, uh, uh, many of you perhaps know much of what's in this book, but I think, I hope at least, all of you will benefit. And I think that this is the kind of knowledge without which, 
uh, it would be entirely foolhardy for any power to venture into the Middle East. And I suggest that our country has ventured very deeply into the Middle East without the slightest smidgen of knowledge or understanding of what it was getting into. Um, that's why I wrote this book. Even before this war began, I had a sense, a very strong sense, of the inevitability of some of these outcomes. I, I didn't believe things would go this bad this quickly. Um, but I wrote this book essentially because I could see coming at least some of what we have tragically seen unfold before our eyes over the past uh, year and a little bit more. Um, let me then begin by summarizing the, the, the main themes of the book and then talking a little bit about where I think we are now. Um, and then I'm going to leave as much time as we can stand in this heat for questions. And afterwards, I'll be happy to sign copies uh, of the book for any of you who, who would like that. Um, the core, perhaps, theme of this book is that military occupation, which has no legitimacy, engenders resistance, always and everywhere. This has been particularly true in the Middle East. The peoples of the Middle East, I argue, have strongly resisted Western control over their countries and over their resources for more than two centuries. This is perhaps the most consistent theme of modern Middle Eastern history. Ignoring it means ignoring facts which everyone in the Middle East is aware of. Everyone who is sentient in the Middle East, at least, is aware of. Everyone who knows the history of this region, as the peoples of this region do. This is a region with a longer history than perhaps any other part of the world. This is a region deeply proud of its millennia of history. This is a region in which what happened over the past 200 years is current events. And th this is a region in which people pay very close attention to their own history. They're taught it in their schools. They're taught it in a nationalistic fashion, but uh, it doesn't take a great deal to teach that these people came, tried to control us, we resisted them, eventually we forced them to leave. This is not rocket science. And so this is a second theme of the book. A third theme of the book, something that is entirely, has been entirely absent from the banal, at best, media discourse about the Middle East, is that there has in fact been a strong tradition of constitutionalism, strong aspirations for democracy in the Middle East over the past century and a half, or century and a quarter. There were constitutions in most countries of the Middle East before there were constitutions in most of Southern and Eastern Europe. This is not a region in which the idea of limitation of the absolute power of the ruler, or constitutional uh, structures, or the rule of law, or parliamentary democracy are completely alien, are totally foreign. This is a region in which most countries for decades and decades and decades have had partially faulty, often defective, often weak uh, parliamentary or constitutional or democratic regimes. And one of the sub-themes that I try and argue is that quite frequently uh, these constitutional governments were sabotaged by Western powers, Western powers which did not want uh, uh, independent democratic governments to tell them, remove your bases, give us control over our, national re our natural resources. Uh, countries like Egypt, countries like Syria, countries like Iraq, uh, for most of the first half of the 20th century, had parliamentary democracies that were systematically sabotaged and undermined by uh, Western powers which were intent on keeping bases or uh, taking resources 
or uh, controlling strategic uh, points like the Suez Canal. Uh, this is a major theme of modern Middle East history. No one who knows the history of the modern Middle East doesn't know these things, but unfortunately, in the popular discourse in this country, somehow these things have fallen through the cracks. And it's considered a novel assertion to say, these people are actually capable of democracy. Shock, horror. Of course they're capable of democracy. There was a constitution in the Ottoman Empire in Iran before there was a constitution in Portugal or Russia. They're not only capable of it, they have very strong, long-lasting aspirations uh, for democracy. Another point that I make in the book is that oil has been controlled by outsiders. Middle Eastern oil has been controlled by outsiders for most of the 20th century. Oil was first discovered in commercial quantities in Iran in 1901. Very soon after, uh, Britain managed to gain control of that oil. For most of the next two-thirds of a century, the price, the amount of profit Iran and other Middle Eastern countries could get, production levels, control of production facilities was entirely in the hands of foreigners, nor Iranians, nor Iraqis, nor Bahrainis, nor anyone else in Middle Eastern countries until the 60s or the 70s had any control over any aspect of oil production in their countries, including exactly how small a pittance they would get from the wealth of their own country's natural resources. This is understandably something that has been deeply resented in the Middle East. And any intimation that uh, there are attempts to take these natural resources, to take away these natural resources, is naturally uh, strongly resented. An another point that I make in this book is that the question of Palestine has been a major factor in alienating people in the Middle East from the United States in particular and from Great Britain before it. Um, I try and link this uh, to the general course of uh, how the United States was regarded in the Middle East uh, over the first century and a half of its engagement with that region. And I mention what may be a novel uh, fact to some people, that in fact the United States was very highly regarded in the Middle East uh, for the better part of it, the first century or century and a half of its engagement with the region. Um, a number of things changed that. One of them, one of the important ones, uh, was the way in which the United States treated the question of Palestine. Finally, I argue in the book the people in the Middle East are not really very foolish. And they're particularly apt to judge the West, of which they have ample experience, I promise you, uh, by its actions rather than by the words of its leaders. Let me read you the words of some prominent Western figures. O ye Egyptians, they may say to you that I have not made an expedition hither for any other object than that of abolishing your religion. But tell the slanderers that I have not come to you except for the purpose of restoring your rights from the hands of the oppressors. This was Napoleon Bonaparte in his declaration to the Egyptian people issued in Arabic in Alexandria in July of 1798. About seven months, no, less than seven, five months after this declaration, the Egyptians uh, decided that Napoleon had come for other purposes than restoring their rights, rose up against the Egyptian garrison in Cairo, killed the commander of the garrison, and uh, took back control of the city and were only resubjugated by the massed artillery of the French army located in the citadel, bombarding the city below. Another quotation. Our armies do not come into your cities and lands as conquerors or enemies, but as liberators, 
It is the hope and desire of the British people and the nations in alliance with them that the Arab race may rise once more to greatness and renown among the peoples of the earth. This was General Maud, commander of British forces, on his entry into Baghdad in March of 1917. As some of you may know, within three years of this proclamation that the British Army arrived as a liberator, the Iraqi people rose up. Uh, the rebellion started at a small town we've perhaps heard of by the name of Fallujah, and managed to basically take back control of most of the central part of the country, the so-called Sunni Triangle, which is the 60% of the country between what is now the Syrian border and the Iranian border, including the two largest cities. It would be like talking about the area between the Appalachians and the Rocky Mountains as the Midwestern Quadrangle, that tiny bit of America. The Sunni Triangle plus the Shiite South rose up against the British. Uh, only the use of the RAF, the liberal use of the RAF, bombing uh, uh, basically indiscriminately and killing approximately 10,000 Iraqis and the loss of about 2,000 British soldiers resubjugated Iraq uh, uh, at the end of this rebellion. My final quotation, the final thing, the final words that I want to read to you. Uh, these you might recognize. Unlike many armies in the world, you came not to conquer, not to occupy, but to liberate. And the Iraqi people know this. This is our very own, you notice that the rhetoric is somewhat less flowery. This is our very own Donald Rumsfeld on April 29, 2003, on his uh, triumphal arrival in Baghdad. Um, so this is the book in sum, summary. Let me now briefly talk about where I think we are. In, in my view, the United States has entered on an extremely dangerous new phase of its long encounter with the Middle East. The United States was initially regarded in the Middle East as the only Western power which did not have colonial ambitions. And in fact, it was for many centuries, for many, not sorry, for many decades, for many generations, indeed, a Western power that had no colonial ambitions. Uh, the United States established schools and hospitals, three of the finest universities in the Middle East, Boaziji University in Istanbul, the American University in Beirut, where I had the honor to teach for seven years, and the American University of, in Cairo, were established by American, originally missionaries. Later on, they became secular institutions. Um, the United States was regarded not only as a country which came with uh, 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 education and, and health, and, and, and raising the level of people in the region, it had, most people came to realize after generation and after generation, it had no ulterior motives. Moreover, from the time of President Wilson's enunciation of the 14 points, which was the first statement by a major Western leader that peoples had the right, the inalienable right, to self-determination, the United States was regarded in the Middle East as an anti-colonial power, not just a non-colonial power, as an anti-colonial power. People were so uh, supportive of the idea uh, of bringing the United States into their region that when President Wilson asked the peace conference in Paris to send a, a commission of inquiry, the so-called King Crane Commission, in 1919 to ask people about their wishes for a Western mandatory to help them towards independence, overwhelming majorities of those asked said, we want an American mandatory. Of course, they didn't get one. That was another story. 
Uh, but from that time onwards, the United States was not just regarded positively as a benevolent power. It was regarded as an anti-colonial power. And indeed, in the aftermath of World War II, in a number of countries, the United States lived up to that reputation. America helped to ensure the independence of Libya. Both, both the Britain, British, and surprising though this may sound to you, the Russians had ambitions to establish bases there and to, in, in effect, take over this former Italian colony. The United States helped Egypt to end uh, the, 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 the basing of British troops there, in, in essence, the occupation of Egypt, which had lasted from 1882 to 1954. The United States helped Iran to force both Russian and British troops out after World War II. The United States helped Algeria to liberate itself from the French. So the United States, in some measure, in fact, lived up to uh, people's uh, uh, views of it. Uh, clearly, things changed during the Cold War. I mentioned Palestine. Equally important was uh, the United States' support for a military coup d'etat against a constitutional, parliamentary, popular government in Iran because it had nationalized Iran's oil in 1953. This was a, a, an important turning point. It ensured the enmity of the Iranian people who chafed under the dictatorship that we and the British imposed on them. It helped to undermine democracy, uh, in, in particular liberal democracy in the Middle East, and it has had effects, negative effects, on Iran and on the Middle East ever since then. Why do I say that we've entered on uh, an extremely dangerous new phase of our encounter with the Middle East? I say this because no power has tried to occupy and refashion a Middle Eastern state since World War I. No one has had the audacity, no one has had the overweening ambition that the Bush administration has showed uh, in not just trying to establish bases in Iraq. There have been American troops in the Middle East since 1942, continuously in some part of the Middle East there have been American troops. This is, this is qualitatively different, what we are doing in Iraq. This is a military occupation. This is a, the, an attempt to establish bases on a long-term uh, basis in Iraq. Uh, this is an attempt to entirely refashion the government of a country about which, in fact, not only do we, the American people, know very little about, the people who are making most of the decisions in this administration know even less. Uh, so I would suggest uh, that this is a... Uh, an, extremely, an extremely dangerous experiment, and I would suggest that the prior experiences of the Middle East with Western powers, with resistance to occupation, uh, and with the United States are all extremely relevant. And the one of the final points that I make in the book, I want to just go back to the book for a moment, is that when Americans are engaged abroad, they tend to think first and foremost of their own intentions, which they necessarily in inevitably think are pure or assume are pure. And sometimes maybe they are. That's not the point. The point is how are we perceived by others? Not what we say we think we're doing. Not what we in fact may be doing, but how these things may be perceived. And I think this is a crucial, a crucial issue in terms of this region's experience with foreign occupation uh, and, 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 and attempts to impose military bases and foreign control on countries of this region. In the lifetimes of every adult in the Middle East, there are memories of British troops kicking down doors in places like Aden, uh, chasing down Arab, Arab, uh, 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 Arabs in the deserts of Amman, of French troops uh, torturing people 
uh, throwing them out of airplanes in Algeria. This, these things happened into the 70s in some parts of the Arab world. European occupation is not ancient history for these people. Anybody who's 50 or 60 remembers these things, saw these things, or heard about them on the radio or read about them in the newspapers. They didn't have satellite television in those days, but they were not completely cut off from the world. They knew, they understood. These were things that people were fully conscious of. These are things that they'd been watching for generation after generation after generation, and they were continuing into the 50s and the 60s. Uh, and in the case of, of, of uh, uh, South Arabia uh, and, and the Gulf, into the early 70s. Now, I argue in the book that there are many reasons for the Bush administration to go into Iraq. Uh, set aside all of the stated reasons. I'll, I'll address them in a moment. I'm talking about the real reasons. In my view, Iraq was meant to be the first installment in a new strategy or in a new strategic era, if you wish, in which the United States would force behavior it desired on small countries if the normal forms of coercion failed. I call this the real Bush doctrine. You can find it enunciated in the National Security Strategy of the United States, adopted in 2002. You can find it enunciated in President Bush's two major State of the Union speeches in 2002 and 2003. You can find it stated in uh, many, many uh, of the uh, 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 most important pronouncements of the President, the Vice President, and the Secretary of Defense, and the Secretary of State. Uh, this is a new approach to the world. This is an approach which argues that the United States has the right to preempt, to launch preventive wars, to launch wars indeed where there is no threat whatsoever to the United States if it feels that it is in its interest. That the United States is not bound by international law, that it is not bound by an international consensus, it is not bound by the United Nations, it is not bound by international public opinion, it is not bound by allies. It will do as it sees fit. It has absolute power and it can act with absolute freedom. This is the core of the new Bush doctrine. And I believe that this is a central reason why we went to, to war in Iraq. And Iraq, in, in this context, is not really the point. The point is a demonstration. Iraq was the test bed. Iraq was the guinea pig for this aspect uh, of, of the Bush doctrine. There were, of course, other reasons. There were strategic reasons having to do with the vision of the strategic planners of the Bush administration of American hegemony in the 21st century. You can read things like the Project for a New American Century. You can th read things like the defense policy guidance documents produced by Secretary Cheney when he was Defense Secretary at the end of the first Bush administration. You can read the documents I've just mentioned to see how establishing bases in Iraq was seen as part of an important leap into the belt of the Middle East and Central Asia such that the United States was in a, at a key, uh, in a key position as between potential rivals in the next century, rivals like China or a revived Russia or a unified Europe not only because of the energy resources of that region, but most importantly because of its strategic importance. There was, thirdly, obviously, oil. Oil both in terms of its strategic importance and oil in terms of advantage for American companies vis-a-vis -vis other companies. This was a third reason. And to argue that it was the most important reason would, I would suggest, be false. But to argue that people who'd spent much of their lives in the oil business, like the president, like the vice president, like his, uh, the President's National Security Advisor, I think would be foolish. These are people who are deeply inured in and involved in the calculations of the great oil companies for which they had worked or with which they had worked much, much of their lives. And the only part, in fact, 
of the Cheney, the secret Cheney Energy Committee, which we, the citizens of the United States who paid for it, do not have the right to see. Uh, the only part of it that has been released because of a Freedom of Information request uh, shows, in fact, uh, that this was indeed uh, one of the objectives of this war. One of the, what the document shows is that uh, 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 Vice President Cheney and his former cronies from the oil industry had already decided how to partition out the oil wealth of Iraq before the war, before 9-11, uh, before uh, any of the spurious pretexts for the war had been concocted. Um, so I would suggest that this is a third reason for the war. There were other reasons, uh, but it was these, rather than any of the stated excuses for the war, all of which have proven to be false. The non-existent weapons of mass destruction, the uh, non-existent links between Iraq and Al-Qaeda, or uh, the idea that people who had never in their lives been interested in democracy in the Middle East were suddenly fervent ap apostles of democratizing a part of the world for, for which they had shown throughout their careers utter and complete contempt. Anybody who believes these as the real reasons for the war, I believe, is not looking very carefully uh, at, uh, at them or at the other reasons that I have adduced for the war. I would argue that there are three core elements in this administration which are influential in terms of foreign policy making. And each of them had a different take on these objectives I've laid out. Uh, one were the so-called neoconservatives, policy intellectuals who've taken many of the top positions as advisors to the president in the National Security Council, to the vice president, uh, to the secretary of defense. Uh, they're uh, all hawkish figures uh, who've never seen a weapon system they didn't love, who've never seen an American base they didn't want to expand, uh, who've rarely found a war they didn't want to fight or a country they didn't want to humiliate. And their advice has very strongly shaped, I think, the direction that this administration has taken. They're, I think, however, the least important of the triad uh, that makes up the foreign policy constituency of the Bush administration. The second element of the triad are uh, extreme Christian evangelis, uh, evangelical uh, 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 messianic types, uh, people uh, who see the world in terms not just of black and white, not just in terms of morality, but in terms of good and evil. And I think this rhetoric is actually extremely significant because if you're not just talking about good and bad or white and black, if you're talking about good and evil, there can be no compromise. The, the conflict between them is an absolute conflict which has to be fought to the end. And I think the, the, the statements of a General Boykin uh, talking about how my God is bigger than their Allah. Um, the, 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 the things that we hear uh, about the president's meetings with some of these people indicate that this is a crucially important segment, uh, not just of the president's support base, but of the foreign policy uh, triad on which uh, the, the policy, not just in Iraq, but in many parts of the world, of this administration uh, is made up. And the third element are the people I call the muscular nationalists, People like the Vice President, people like the Secretary of Defense, people who all their careers have been faithful servants of the, what President Eisenhower in his best speech called his farewell address, called the military-industrial complex. Um, these are people who I believe are not ideologues, and I don't believe they're driven by, uh, by uh, uh, religious morality. Uh, these are people who are hard-eyed realists. These are people who have served in many administrations. These are people who believe in a number of things. Uh, they believe in business, the business 
interests of their cronies and friends in particular, but business generally. But they also believe in the unfettered power of the executive. Uh, uh, Vice President Cheney served as President Ford's chief of staff in a time when the Congress was in the 70s, uh, uh, rising up to limit the power of the executive. And it's very clear that he was scarred by this experience. And most of his career since then, in my view, has been dedicated to expanding the imperial prerogatives of the American presidency, expanding the power of the executive at the expense of the Constitution, at the expense of the Congress, at the expense of the public, at the expense of the press. These are people who believe we do not have a right to know. These are people who believe that they should tell us what we need to know. These are people who believe that they know better. These are people who believe that the executive must have certain prerogatives. And in the wake of 9-11, uh, they have been, in my view, uh, the leaders in framing the foreign policy of this administration. The other two, the other two elements are important, but in my view, uh, they are certainly secondary. Now, I would argue that given this thrust, given that these are the reasons for the war, this has been a war and this has been an occupation that have been waged in the complete absence of expertise. This administration has executed what I describe as a faith-based, fact-free foreign policy. And the exemplar of this faith-based, fact-free foreign policy is what they have done from day one in Iraq. They have systematically excluded everyone within the government, within the State Department, within the uniformed military, whether the Defense Intelligence Agency or other parts of the uniformed military, within the rest of the intelligence community, everyone whose expertise had been developed by living in the countries of the Middle East, whose expertise had been developed by studying Arabic and Middle East studies at universities like the University of Chicago, by pe people who, whose entire careers had been made up uh, of living in and working with and dealing with the Middle East. These people were, with very few exceptions, shut out of any access to decision-making in the lead-up to war, in the execution of the, of the occupation that followed the war. Uh, uh, people in the Department of the Army, people in the intelligence community, people in the State Department are, without exception, bitter about the way in which their expertise was shunted aside. Uh, I'm not suggesting that an expertly run war and an expertly run occupation would have been a good thing. I'm simply saying that the level of catastrophic failure that we are seeing is in some measure a function not just of the ignoble nature of the aims, but of the incompetence of their execution. And this is in part a function of the exclusion to a very high degree of any level of expertise from anywhere within the bureaucracy. This is not expertise, by the way, which comes cheaply. Training thousands of people, thousands of people, to understand something about the Middle East has cost us hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of dollars. All of this was put on the shelf. These people knew better. And as I lay out in the book, some of the paragons of this administration, some of the key policymakers in this administration have demonstrated in documents that they themselves have authored their abysmal ignorance of the Middle East, what they substituted for the expertise of people within and without the government who knew better and if they had been allowed to would have said so. Um, I, I, I think I'm, I'm going to stop soon, but I want to read you one more little piece before I conclude, because I think that it is extremely apt. You'll notice it's not written by someone in this administration. 
It's far too literate a piece of prose. <laughs> the people of England have been led in Mesopotamia into a trap from which it will be hard to escape with dignity and honor. They've been tricked into it by a steady withholding of information. The Baghdad communiques are belated, insincere, incomplete. Things have been far worse than we have been told. Our administration more bloody and inefficient than the public knows. It is a disgrace to our imperial record and may soon be too inflamed for any ordinary cure. We are today not far from a disaster. Our unfortunate troops, Indian and British, under hard conditions of climate and supply, are policing an immense area, paying dearly every day in lives for the willfully wrong policy of the civil administration in Baghdad. These lines were penned by T.E. Lawrence in August 1920 and published in the Sunday Times. Every word of them rings true today in my view. The only important question that is left in, as far as the Iraq occupation is concerned is when it will end and how bloodily. No good, in my view, could have come of this adventure. It was misbegotten from the very beginning, from an unholy union between the three groups in the administration that I've already talked about. Nothing they said proved to be true. Nothing. None of their intentions proved to be sincere. There is no way this adventure could have been redeemed. Only a certain minimal level of, of competence might have prolonged it. That was absent. As it is, continuation of this, prolongation of this bloody, miserable adventure will only lead to a greater effusion of anti-American sentiment, not only in the Middle East, not only in the rest of the Islamic world, but the world over, in my view. Um, I think that we m may indeed be, if this continues, if the United States is not able to extricate itself rapidly from the, 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 the fiasco that the Bush administration has taken us into, this may indeed uh, engender a level of anti-Americanism anti that the world hasn't seen uh, since uh, the Vietnam War. There are already, I think, levels of anti-Americanism in many parts of the world which perhaps uh, are beginning uh, to rival that sad period in American history. I want to conclude by saying that the argument that the United States is in Iraq to fight terrorism is perhaps the most dangerous and foolish argument of all. The occupation of Iraq is the best possible gift to the terrorists who have repeatedly attacked this country that they could possibly have dreamed of in their wildest fantasies. We have done them an enormous favor by allowing our government to take us into this catastrophic, foolish misadventure. They are the only beneficiaries. It is absolutely essential, in my view, that this misadventure be terminated as rapidly as possible. I am asked, do you really mean that we should simply withdraw? What will happen thereafter? The United States has become perhaps the biggest factor for instability and insecurity in Iraq. It's true. We are completely, fully, totally, and utterly responsible for Iraq today because we've occupied it. We are the occupying power. When we withdraw, it's not if, when we withdraw, 
we will be, in some measure, responsible for the consequences. If those consequences are catastrophic, I would argue there is a great deal of responsibility that will, that will lie on the shoulders of the people who took us into this war. But it will be far, far worse for the people of Iraq, far, far worse for the people of the Middle East, and far worse for the people of this country if this occupation is prolonged. I want to thank you for your patience in this heat. And I'd be happy to answer questions. Um, what we're, the format we're going to follow now is that Alfredo Lanier is going to ask Rashid a couple of questions to get the discussion going, and then um, they will open the floor for questions from the mic. But please wait a few minutes till we have a chance to have the back and forth on our panel before people start lining up at the microphone. Al, you can give people the signal when. No, no, when you want them to start, not when you want them to stop. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the first question I have is, is kind of difficult. The premise is kind of difficult. Forget about Bush. Mm -hmm. Forget about the Iraqi war. Still, when you look at the map of the Middle East, you don't see any democracy out there. All you see are emirates and monarchies and dictatorships. Can the United States or should the United States or anybody else try, try to promote democracy and human rights in that area? Yes. I think that the aspiration uh, for democracy exists in the Middle East. But most countries in the Middle East, with the exception, of course, of Turkey, with the exception, of course, of Israel inside Israel's own borders, uh, with the partial exception, sadly, of, of, of Iran, partial because there is a theocracy struggling against uh, an attempt to establish a democracy. With those exceptions, uh, it's true, the Middle East is a, is a black hole of human rights abuses and of the absence of democracy. And I think that supporting democracy in that part of the world would be a good thing. I don't think that this administration uh, uh, walks the walk. It talks the talk, but it supports repressive regimes that are serial abuses of human rights from one end of the region to the other. Yeah, but still, I mean, how would you, forget about Bush, I mean, how would you, if you were elected president in November, how would you? Uh, <laughs> Not likely. <laughs> how would you promote uh, human rights in the Middle East? What is the proper way of doing it, or can it be done? Well, I think it can be done. Um, I think that um, there are countries where the United States has a great deal of influence. And by and large, that influence has not been used uh, to encourage uh, uh, respect for human rights. Countries like Egypt, say, or Morocco, say, or Jordan. Uh, nor has it been used uh, to encourage uh, uh, d further democratization. And those are, there are countries where there are, there are actually seeds of democracy that can be nurtured. But this cannot be a heavy-handed process. This cannot be a process where the United States tells people what to do. I think we will see in, the, in Iraq that whatever Mao says about political power growing out of the barrel of the gun, it is a maxim which we should all wear in our hearts that democracy does not grow out of the barrel of a gun. Uh, democracy has to be nurtured in a very careful and, 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 and long-range way. And ultimately, state building and nation building and the creation of democracy are the, responsible, the responsibility of the peoples of, of the countries concerned. We can only encourage and not discourage. Uh, beyond that, I don't think we or any other democratic country can, can do much. The second question is, to what extent has the relationship between the United States and Israel and Palestine distorted the whole Middle Eastern policy of the United States? The United States is, yeah, the United States has, I think, been perceived since it supported partition in 1947 
as a power which stands up vigorously for Israel, for the self-determination of the Israeli people, for the security of Israel, and doesn't seem to care about the security of the Palestinians or the self-determination of the Palestinians. It wasn't until President Carter that an American president even talked about a Palestinian homeland, let alone a Palestinian state. And even though President Clinton, sorry, President uh, Bush has talked about a Palestinian state, um, he has supported perhaps uh, the most repressive Israeli government in the modern history, of, in the history of Israel. So you know, I, I would argue that, that America's policy on Palestine is perceived, Palestine-Israel, is perceived as at variance with its ideals, at the, at the very least, in, in most of the Middle East. I would argue in most of the world. I don't think I don't think there's any different. There are very many differences on this, from Asia to Africa to Europe to Latin America to the Middle East. Rashid was yesterday uh, was visiting yesterday the Chicago Tribune, and he said that uh, our options in Iraq are bad, worse, and horrible. And I was wondering, well, you know, what do you do? I mean, how, you have to withdraw from there, but how do you do that without creating more chaos? Well, you have to first admit that some of your objectives, admitted or unadmitted, are unrealizable. Mm -hmm. Explicitly state to the Iraqis, we do not intend to have bases in your country. This was a core objective of the Bush administration. They only talked about it very quietly, but they did talk about it. And the Iraqis heard that loud and clear. We may have ignored it, but they knew it. We have to say, no American troops, under any circumstances, will be in Iraq beyond date X. Secondly, we have to say we will not negotiate secret contracts, which we are currently doing, which will, will maintain indirect control over various aspects of your economy. Those contracts will be null and void as soon as the United States has left the country. Finally, I would set a date for departure. I would do everything possible, as I lay out in the book, even though I, I don't think this is a good option. It's one of the least bad options to find some international uh, uh, actors who can act as a buffer uh, for the interim period between the beginning of an American withdrawal and a total handover uh, of, of, of sovereignty to the Iraqis or return of sovereignty to the Iraqi people. Thank you. Uh